Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, Mr. Magneto? It's Magneto. Magneto, why can't anyone say it right? Can you open the door, please? What is it, child? It's just that the X-Men have been weakened by the evil sarcophagus thing. The, The other villains are saying that now is the time to strike. I want you to be honest with me. Always, sir. Does this costume make me look fat? No, it it doesn't, sir. Because you know I've got sort of a Zoe Deschanel body type, by which I mean I can look fabulous in the right thing, but not in any old thing. The sense I got from the other villains was that every second was important, Let's so... just stay with this for another minute. Red and purple, too much? I would never say that. Because I had this idea of doing more color blocking. Red top, black bottoms, maybe a little pleated. Subtle purple piping. And then you've got something that can be fun casual, like meeting some friends for a late breakfast, but will also work when battling mutants. It's just that there was this window for defeating the X-Men and achieving world domination. And there you have it. The way I dress defines me in terms of my past and takes me away from my nowness. What if I don't want world domination? right now? What if I want to get together with friends and make our own ice cream sandwiches? You don't really have any friends, sir. That really hurt. Maybe he does need a new costume. I hope he listens to this show. And now he denies ever having worked as Lex Luthor's fluffer, Colin McEnroe. That's totally untrue. I don't know how that rumor got out. And I I just, and it just surfaces from time to time, too. Not the first time I've heard that. It's certainly not true. All right. So we're going to be talking about superhero costumes today. And I think probably the reason that we're doing it, uh, we have, we didn't have rather circuitous progresses towards the ultimate show that we do. But I think it started with the fact that Jack Kirby uh, celebrated or would have celebrated his 100th anniversary, his 100th birthday yesterday. And Jack Kirby had much to say uh, about superheroes were going, uh, how they were going to look during a certain period. But he's, he didn't, he wasn't there at the beginning. He didn't uh, invent how superheroes look. So we have to sort of uh, take a trip through that terrain as well. So let me tell you a little bit about some of the people we'll be talking about and some of the things we'll be talking about. We'll be talking very specifically at some point about capes. We'll be talking specifically at another point about masks. We'll be talking to John Romita Jr., who's a veteran comic book illustrator and a writer for Marvel and now DC Comics, somebody who would be able to talk uh, eloquently about the Kirby canon. But we really want to take an overview. We want to take a trip across the the timeline of superhero costumes. And to do that, we need Barbara Brownie, lecturer in visual communication at the University of Hertfordshire, a, a co-author of The Superhero Costume, Identity and Disguise in Fact and Fiction. She, as they say, wrote the book on this. So, Barbara Brownie, welcome to our conversation. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, prior to the arrival of, say, somebody like Superhero, heroes, for the most part, you know, didn't wear costumes. We could talk about Zorro. We could talk about the Scarlet Pimpernel. We could talk about Robin Hood. But mostly they were, you know, I mean, Achilles didn't wear a costume, right? He was super, but he didn't wear a costume. So, so how did we come to have a, such a thing as a costumed superhero? 
well, many of these other heroes had superpowers and they were associated with particular costumes, mm. um, but they didn't wear those costumes in the same way as superheroes do. And with the introduction of Superman, um, what came with the introduction of the costume was a way of splitting the two identities. So the, the superhero alter ego and the civilian alter ego. Right. Um, and the superhero is defined by his costume, which quite often tells us something about his identity, Might maybe quite literally like the Batman, um, or perhaps with the logo emblazoned on it. Right, although Superman's a little bit different from a lot of the superheroes who more or less accompanied, accompanied him in that time span, in the sense that superhero, the superhero, Superman is the reality, Clark Kent is the fiction. In other words, the disguise is, is Clark Kent, whereas for Batman, the Green Lantern, Flash, uh, a lot of these other superheroes that came along in that wake, they were people who put on disguises to be superheroes. And so I think Superman's a little bit different, and I think he's also different because, you know, in 1938, um, he's an immigrant, uh, he's an immigrant who he's really from a very strange place and 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 nativism and discomfort with immigrants did not start with Donald Trump. It's been around for a really long time. In a way, I think his costume in its evocation a little bit of the colors of the flag is also meant to be kind of reassuring. It's kind of like I'm on your side. I'm, I'm going to be a really good American, even though I originate from another planet. I don't know. Does that resonate with you or do you disagree? Well, it's absolutely uh, right. And that's why Siegel and Schuster created this immigrant hero, because they were themselves from immigrant backgrounds. Um, uh, but the meaning has shifted and, and it used to be that he his costume very much stood for the American way. Um, and those values have shifted slightly and he's now more a hero for the world rather than just for America. And, and concomitantly... And we can talk about we'll talk about this later, I, I guess. But his his costume has changed a, a bit, too. And certainly in some of the latest movie iterations, his costume is a much darker thing. Yes, darker, but also more alien. And there's definitely an effort in the most recent films um, to make the texture of the costume look quite alien and otherworldly to, to really emphasize the fact that he is an alien but for all of these, and this is something that you read a lot about, is all of these superheroes are dealing with the fact that somehow or another, they are the other. They express otherness. And so for Batman, I mean, Batman's the opposite of Superman. Not only is he not an immigrant, he's a rather wealthy, multi-generational millionaire. He comes from money, as they say. Uh, and, and so this is this other thing that he does, this this parallel life that he has. The otherness is the Batman part of it. And and that is something that he's at pains to separate, right, from his Absolutely, Bruce Wayne identity. Absolutely, yes. And he's um, he's very conscious of the otherness of his costume. It's, that's exactly what he's trying to, to recreate or to create in, with his costume is the sense that he is other and therefore frightening. Right. And he's when, not familiar and comforting and safe. Right. And I think frightening is important for Batman because Batman doesn't really have any yes. superpowers. He isn't, you know, biologically any different from you or me. So he, he, he needs every possible upper hand he can get. And maybe the psychological advantage of looking kind of scary helps him. Yeah, it's a, a symbol. And, and he, he knows that he um, he gets the upper hand in part because he um, he makes people afraid. He makes criminals afraid. And that's, that's what he's explicitly set out to do. 
Um, it, it does seem also that there's an, another, I mean, there are a lot of pivot points there, here. There are a lot of transitions that happen. I think with the arrival of the first wave of Marvel comic book heroes, you suddenly had a bunch of people for whom this was a slightly different premise uh, um, for the Fantastic Four and for the X-Men. Their existence as superheroes was more a condition of their lives. Uh, they were either mutants or they'd been bombarded by gamma rays. And, and there really wasn't any way that they could put on their identity or take it off. They had to live with it, especially if you were like the thing or something. And so instead of costumes, they seemed to have uniforms, right? They weren't really, for the most part, trying to hide who they were. They just were trying to identify what they were. Yes, and, and for Fantastic Four or for the X-Men, the costumes are about uh, expressing unity, expressing relationship to other heroes who are in the same boat as them. So they are, much like military uniforms, um, expressing a shared set of, val a set, you know, shared set of values and also um, that kind of familiar or, or um, camaraderie that means they're going to um, stand up for each other um, that they'll be there for each other, but also they are going to work together as a team. And that's all expressed through what they wear. So as a uh, kid reading comic books, I really did love the bright colors of the uh, the most of the uniforms. Okay, so Batman, we know, is very dark, very noir from, from the start. Although, and we can get to this a little bit later, he wasn't as dark as he is now. But most of these uh, most of these heroes wore bright, colorful costumes. Even the early X-Men were like mainly yellow with a kind of electric blue that went along with it. That These are sort of bright, exciting colors. And so they were pleasing to my young, unsophisticated eye. But uh, you write also that there's some, some way in which they suggest moral virtue well they um they are very visible they they can't hide in the shadows in these bright colors they very much say look i'm out here i've got nothing to hide mm -hmm. um i i can be subjected to scrutiny that there's nothing that i'm hiding with um with this mask it's, it's brightly colored it's not a mask to hide me because i'm doing the wrong thing um so that that Brightness does, yeah, it's it's an invitation for people to watch them, to, to look at them, and to, yeah, subject them to, to moral scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how specific any of the Arthurian stories are about how people look. But I think we sense that, for example, Galahad is very bright. And you know, the, there's a sort of bright pastel quality to someone like Galahad. He doesn't have dark shadows all over him, and he's not trying to hide himself. Yeah. And, of course, the, the cape comes from that history of the people... Um, in battle parts and wanting to be looked at there. It's, it's all for show. All right. So um, to this conversation, we are now going to add Chris Isaac. Um, we are talking right now about superhero costumes and how they've evolved. Chris Isaac, journalist and freelance writer for Screen Rant, as well as comic book resources, sometimes known as CBR. Uh, Chris Isaac, welcome to the conversation that we're having right now. Thanks for having me. So one thing I want to talk to both of you about uh, is one of the ways in which these costumes have evolved. And, and so, Chris, one thing that we can say is that they've a lot of them have darkened, darkened quite a bit. It's really, if you see the latest iteration of Superman, even the Henry Cavill one, uh, it's a much darker costume. Batman, if, if you really go back to the original Batman, you know, I mean, he had sort of a dark cape. 
But then his torso was kind of grayish purple or something. And then there was this big yellow bat insignia in the middle of it. And I mean, he really wasn't all that dark at the outset. He just got darker and darker. What is that all about? Well, I think the darkness can definitely be traced to the different decades. Um, you saw that a lot in the 80s and 90s when like, that was like a more angst-ridden time, you know. Um, that was when Spider-Man first donned the black suit, and that eventually became the basis for Venom. Uh, in the 90s, you had uh, Superman. After he was killed by Doomsday, he switched over to the black suit and grew out the long mullet. Uh, you had Wonder Woman, who also swapped out her um, classic, like, American flag kind of outfit for more of a darker biker costume. So I think that was more of a reflection of the times, like you were saying earlier. Right. So you've got, uh, yeah, I would say Wonder Woman also kind of went back. If you look at her modern look, it's more pagan, too, right? She went back to her pagan roots. Initially, she arrived in this almost in a ridiculously American form. Uh, but that doesn't really make any sense if she's from pagan Greek deities, right? Sure. Um, so I'm also wondering, uh, and Barbara, let me uh, turn back to you for a second. I'm also wondering whether there is also a, a mental shift that goes on, and it clearly goes on with Batman and the Dark Knight stuff, but I wonder if it goes on everywhere, that instead of virtue, brightly colored virtue, triumphing over uh, the darkness of evil, that there was more of a sense of it takes a, a thief to catch a thief. It takes a somewhat flawed person familiar with darkness to triumph over even deeper darkness. Was, was that sort of a, yeah, go ahead. And why these previous few decades have been um, characterized by this darkening of the costume is because during these previous few decades, comics have been subject to um, a lot of critical analysis and people have started to ask um, or kind of to place these superheroes in a more realistic setting and to ask questions rather than just take their um, heroism for granted. And through that scrutiny, by, by starting to ask questions, um, we've tried to take a, a more realistic approach to superheroes or our understanding of them. And if you do ask too many questions, you start to realize that um, heroes are not actually always good. You know, they quite often turn to violence as a first resort. There's all sorts of um, issues that they have to deal with personally in order to keep those, those dual identities sustained. And, and so the darkening has happened as a result of our, um, our turn to realism and the realization that there is a lot of darkness that must underpin the hero if we, um, if we really dig too deeply. Well, I think, Barbara, also, in the age of Marvel comic books, you had a group of heroes who were thinking in a more familiar and reflective way about what, what it meant to be doing what they're doing. Uh, whereas, I mean, it, with Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Aquaman, all those DC heroes, once they decided that they were going to do this, they just marched right ahead and did it. Whereas, I mean, you know, if you want to get down to the brass tacks of uniforms, I, I was an early Spider-Man reader. There was one uh, comic book pretty early on in the Spider-Man saga where his uniform got really dirty uh, 
and he had to figure out how he was going to wash it. He had to wait for Aunt May to get out of the house so that he could use the washing machine. And there was this great panel of him taking out and saying, wow, now it's all clean and sweet smelling. And then saying, what am I saying? I sound like a, a laundry detergent commercial. Um, but I mean, what Superman before that ever thought about you know, the, the reality of, of a uniform. Yeah, go ahead, Barbara. Spider-Man is, is a brilliant, um, brilliant comic to look at for a postmodern response to the, the superhero costume because Spider-Man very much engaged with uh, the reality of the costume um, and that costume reflecting a kind of fiction. So, for example, there is, um, there is one storyline in which um, Spider-Man is forced to go and buy a costume, a fake costume, that's in, in a um, children's costume shop that looks like his own costume. And, um, yeah, so there are all sorts of really interesting references to the um, the reality of wearing a costume and, and the play, uh, the cosplay, um, and all of those are dressed quite nicely in Spider-Man comics. So one thing that we are starting to see, uh, Chris, is superheroes who just don't wear costumes. And so, I mean, Wolverine uh, became more and more Logan and less Wolverine and less inclined to be dressed up in some kind of X-Men costume. Um, and, and we now are watching on Netflix The Defenders, three, four heroes, three of whom don't wear any costumes, and one, the last one wears them wears his Daredevil costume kind of sparingly. I mean, you have to wait, wait a lot to watch him, wait a long time to watch him put on his Daredevil costume. So what's going on there? Are we, is this the twilight of costumes? Well, I think, like has been already said, and I think there is more of a shift towards realism with the costumes. Um, part of that might just be due to the um, trying to capture these heroes on live action because a lot of them do wear more outlandish outfits that wouldn't really translate that well to a actual person all the time. Um, like you mentioned with Wolverine, uh, he has like the bright yellow costume and like almost like black bunny ears kind of. <laughs> so like seeing that on Hugh Jackman, it might not make him the most serious depiction of a character, whereas with Logan, like that was actually like a pretty had a lot of emotion in that movie, and I don't think like that would have been captured too well if he had been wearing this very attention-grabbing outfit. So I think it's more of an attempt to humanize them. Right. The more human they get, the more you have to... It's sort of like a musical, you know? People don't naturally burst into song, so that's always a challenge for anyone writing a modern, naturalistic musical. And similarly, similarly people don't typically stop what they're doing and put on a costume so they can start doing something else. Mm -hmm. So the more naturalistic you make things, the weirder that gets that somebody would take the time to put on some spandexy thing. Um, Chris, I'd also like to ask a little bit, because it's something that we've uh, dealt with recently here on this show and also maybe even as a society. I mean, Wonder Woman has undergone some evolutions that have less to do with the colors of her uniform and more to do with how she's presented. Um, there's always been kind of a paucity of really good uh, superheroes who are women. Uh, and, and then the question becomes, well, do you do you emphasize the the sexual attractiveness of this character? And if you do so, are you sensationalizing her? I mean, it, it, there's sort of a, a knife's edge that they're always running their thumb down, it seems. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, I think you have it right. I think it is like a tightrope for them to walk. Um, Wonder Woman's outfit definitely did become skimpier as the years went by at first. 
and um, the artists behind it said that it did increase the sales. Um, I don't think anyone's surprised about um, sex selling, but at the same time, Wonder Woman was created as like an icon for feminism, so it's like they're trying to balance out having her be like this positive role model while not having her be totally objectified either. And it's weird because, like you see it with other um, female comic book characters, um, Harley Quinn is a really good example. Everyone knows her because of Suicide Squad now. Mm-hmm. And when she started out, she had like the classic Jester's outfit. And I'm sure some people did find that attractive, but it wasn't like anything overtly objectifying. She was fully covered. But then once she began having her outfit evolve in like the Arkham Asylum video games and her outfit became more revealing, that marked a point where she did start becoming more popular, that sort of becoming more of her standard outfit. And now we have it where like her Suicide Squad outfit that we just saw in theaters last year, that's the one that everyone associates with her. Um, Barbara, I'm also wondering whether these two questions or whether the two sexes, anyway, run on parallel tracks here. I mean, I think we know that there's a certain amount of tension. Say actually, is that well, men are also objectified by their superhero costumes. They they're often very skin tight. They show off the muscles. There's, they don't need anything to the imagination. So I don't think that that's, that's something you can say just about female right. costumes. Right, and certainly but also, yeah. Go ahead. Um, but also, male uh, superheroes choose to objectify themselves by putting on these costumes. By, by showing off their muscles and, and putting on a costume that says, right, I'm ready for physical activity, not intellectual activity, they are objectifying themselves. They are, they're framing them in a way that is all about the physical and not about the intellectual or any other skills that they might use when they're in other clothing. Um, it's, I certainly think that if you look at represent, representations of Thor over the course of time, uh, you realize that there's a certain amount of marketing being involved of this heavily muscled guy with powerful and often naked thighs and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, he's not he's not a shrinking violet about how he looks. Um, so, uh, Chris, I want to ask a little bit about that whole idea of the way that they change over time. I, I've always assumed that one of the reasons that, that there'll be kind of reformats or, or remakes or new looks, some of it's got to be just marketing, right? That, you know, maybe you were getting tired of how the old X-Men looked. Yeah, I think part of it is just because as new artists and writers come on to take over the comic books, they want to be able to find their own mark to leave on the character, so they try to switch things up. Um, We saw that with Wonder Woman. Um, In the Odyssey storyline, she was given, like, pants instead of, like, her classic, like, Amazon skirt. Um, She started wearing a jacket, and that was more of a modernized outfit for her. And a lot of people didn't really care for that outfit too much. They thought it was deviating too much from what made her iconic. Um, so, yeah, I think it's partially due to a reflection of the times, trying to keep the heroes stylish, and also just the, um, the team behind the comics also trying to find a way to leave their own mark and um, make the hero iconic in their own way as well. All right, we've got to grab a a break here. Uh, Thanks so much to Chris Isaac for talking to us. Uh, We're talking about comic books, uh, about superheroes, about superheroes in movies and what they wear. Chris Isaac, journalist and freelance writer for Screen Rant, as well as comic book resources. Uh, Barbara Browning is going to stay with us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about capes, and we're going to talk about masks. 
has been sworn to protect the weak. But my powers haven't formed, so I guess we'll see. I'll be adorned with accessories and cool gadgets, tools and magic beneath bulletproof fabric. And that's great, but for now I have to wait. In this mask and cape, made a mask and tape. At school I concentrate, but mortal men bore me. I'm on a case looking for my own. Wait. You want to make me a suit? You push too hard, darling. But I accept. It will be bold, dramatic, yeah. heroic. Yeah, something classic. Like uh, Dinah Guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. Isn't that my decision? Do you remember Thunderhead? Listen. All was well, another day saved, when his cape snagged on a missile pen. Thunderhead was not the brightest ball. Stratogale! Cape caught in a jet turbine. Hey, you can't generalize about this Meta thing. Man! Express elevator! Dyna guy! Snag on takeoff! Splashdown! Sucked into a vortex! No capes! No capes. But uh, for a long time, it was yes capes. Now, why do superheroes wear capes? Or why did they wear capes for a really long time? Uh, we're talking to Barbara Brownie, lecturer in visual communication at the University of Hertfordshire and a co-author of the superhero costume, identity and disguise, in fact, and fiction. Uh, now joining us uh, is Ella Morton, senior editor at Atlas Obscura, one of our favorite publications, and a co-author of the book, Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. She's been with us before, uh, but not about capes. Um, so, Ella, um, let's talk about let's talk about capes, and uh, Barbara's going to do that with us. But, um, but yeah, so we, we we start the superhero story with Superman. He gets a cape, but why does he get a cape? Does he get a cape because there's some kind of tradition of capes in, in other walks of life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I cannot think of a more dramatic garment than the cape. <laughs> I mean, the the word cape in Latin is kappa, and the word escape comes from ex kappa, which means to to slip out of one's cape, to be in such a hurry that you, you leave it behind. And um, military commanders in the Roman Empire used to wear these long, flowing capes. So... While the concept of the superhero would have been alien to them, they certainly were acquainted with this idea of the cape as the garment of drama, the garment of uh, conflict, and they, they donned them in a ceremonial way while they were getting ready for, for battle preparation. So I think that the cape has a long history of being this uh, a garment of, of flamboyance, a way to sort of punctuate a one-liner and a way to, to get ready for battle. But it's also, I think, kind of a status marker, too, right? I mean, princes wear capes. Absolutely, yeah. They come along with royalty. And uh, back in the Roman Empire, the commanders would wear this long cape, but the centurions that were fighting under them, they got like a slightly less cool cape. It was a little bit shorter, a little bit less flowy. So the, the, the type of cape even denoted your, your status. Um, and, and so when we get to Superman, well, first of all, maybe before we get to Superman. OK, so that's out there in reality. You've got uh, uh, Roman generals and you've got uh, princes and then you've got people starting to create heroes. And, and so then you do have people like the three musketeers. I'm guessing real musketeers probably wore their capes only under ceremonial circumstances. Cyrano, the Scarlet Pimpernel. I'm trying the Scarlet Pimpernel, I know he wore a cape when he was his foppish secret identity. Did he wear a cape when he was the Scarlet Pimpernel? Do we know? Oh, that I can't quite remember. But I know that... Um, it, it, 
In the emergence of the swashbuckler archetype, which started during the 16th century, it kind of got big in the 19th century. You did have people like the Scarlet Pimpernel and Zorro and Cyrano de Bergerac, who were just walking around with a cape slung over one shoulder. So it was more like a kind of fashion statement, a sort of I'm cool, but I'm ready for action type deal. Yeah, I would assume, I I don't know the derivation of the word swashbuckler, but I assume the swash part of it has something to do with a cape. It feels like you swash with your cape. Definitely. And also in the 16th century, Italian fencers were really into cloaks and capes, and they used to wrap them around the arm that wasn't holding the sword in order to shield it. Um, And there was this fencing master, this Italian fencing master, who even recommended that uh, you can use your cloak as a weapon if you're in a bind. You can sort of uh, pretend that you're going to hit someone with it, and then when they flinch, you can actually hit them with it for real. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a cloak or a, a cape can be a weapon. So, Barbara Brownie, let's turn back to 1938 and our immigrant superhero, Superman, Cal L from the planet Krypton, being created by, as you pointed out, also to immigrants to America. And, um, is maybe the cape... Because the cape is a status marker, maybe the cape for Superman is a way of saying, yes, this is somebody who has a nobility of purpose and you need to take him seriously. Well, not only nobility of purpose, but but real nobility. Um, He was royalty and the cape is a regal garment. Um, So it it says he is a king or a prince. He has royal blood in him. He's not just any alien. He's a special alien. <laughs> Not just any alien, a special alien. So, uh, Ella, now we come to modernity. Now, I mean, it, it's not really modernity because really starting, I don't know, maybe 60s, 70s, you start to see some Marvel superheroes who don't wear capes. Fantastic Four, no capes. Most versions, most iterations of the X-Men, no capes. And you start to get, once again, these Marvel heroes whose situation, whose condition of life is what makes them super. So, you know, that's the Fantastic Four. It's the X-Men. It's the Incredible Hulk, too. I mean, it's not like he, you know, made this big plan to do this. So right away, I mean, I I think as early as that, we're starting to see capes go away a little bit. Is there some, I don't know, psychological subtext to all that? Well, there was definitely a shift because if you look at the cover of uh, Action Comics, the the edition in 1938 where Superman first appeared. He has this long, flowing red cape behind him. He's lifting up a car. People around him are just freaking out at this idea of this incredible, strong guy. Um, And it very much spells action. But if you get to the 1960s and you start to look at things like the the TV version of Batman, uh, capes take on a sort of camp value. There's a bit more of a sort of low-budget approach to the look. And as you mentioned before, you don't necessarily need a cape to be a superhero. Um, And if you look at things like when Robin, uh, whenever a character is upgraded in some way, like when Robin became Nightwing in 1984, first thing to ditch, to get ditched in his costume was the cape. He became sleeker. uh, He didn't have this sort of cumbersome cape flowing out behind him. It was a sign of maturity. So I think that the whole capes as uh, maybe a camp garment 
uh, that, that changed around the 1960s. And then, of course, you had people like Liberace who just really cemented the, cape, the camp factor. <laughs> well, I don't know if we have to drag Liberace into this particular form, but maybe. Um, so, <laughs> well, I think also, Ella, one thought I had, and this is either going to mark me out forever as a comic book nerd or, or I'll get it wrong. That might even be worse. It seems to me, like even recently, cinematically, cinematically when we're introduced to the vision he has a cape and and I'm wondering if that's because the vision is a machine who much the way Superman had to send a signal way back in the 1930s that as an alien from another planet he was still really here to be one of us and had a nobility of purpose that the vision needs a cape once again to sort of say well I'm not just a machine right ah interesting I one thing that I have noticed recently is that capes are worn by uh, people or creatures who are maybe overcompensating a little bit. Uh, they tend to be monarchs, gods, uh, sorcerers. A lot of sort of self-important blowhards are wearing capes these days. Um, and the the superheroes that are a little more down to earth, that are more humble, they don't seem to need capes. So maybe there's something connected to the humanity of that. People, the people who are more who come across a bit more human don't need to wear the capes anymore. Um, you know, Barbara, this gets us into what's sometimes referred to by you or Michael Chabon as the paradox of the superhero costume, right? That on the one hand, the superhero costume is a disguise. On another hand, it's very, very different from how everybody else dresses. And so it's essentially very, uh, it calls a lot of attention to itself. Yes, um, and that um, says a lot about why superheroes wear them. They, they, they wear them not because they're practical, um, indeed they're, they're quite often very impractical, um, but rather because they are doing what they're doing partly for show, partly because they want to spread a message, they want to spread their values. Um, so even though they are hiding their own personal identities, there is something they want to express quite loudly through that costume. And quite often it is a set of, of values that they would like to be larger than themselves. All right. So we're going to leave off with capes. And thanks very much to uh, Ella Morton. Uh, she's a cape expert. I don't think there are that many of them. Uh, she is also senior editor at Atlas Obscura and co-author of the book Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. Uh, we've got a few minutes left in this segment. And so, Barbara, the other thing we have to talk about is the mask. Uh, once again, there, you know, we're living in an age where there are a lot of superheroes who don't wear costumes. Therefore, they don't wear masks. But certainly in the, the early stages some would call it, might also might call it the golden age uh, of the rise of superheroes. Masks were very much in vogue. And, and I wonder about this. I wonder also, not to map it too closely onto history, but you're going through a time uh, where, yes, you're coming out of the 30s, where there's great suspicious uh, suspicion of immigrants. You then move into the World War II era, where there is a certain amount of cloak and dagger going on. You go from there to the Cold War, where people are very suspicious of one another. Uh, all of that also takes place against the background of other kinds of otherness, especially homosexuality, something that was uh, risky, uh, dangerous, and in some cases criminal, to be out uh, about and to be clear about who you are. Is, does that help explain why so many superheroes are wearing masks? Um, well, it, I think it's useful to look at the mask from the perspective of the superhero. 
as masks can be very empowering. Um, if you, you're wearing a mask, you are de-individualized, you um, feel stronger, you feel perhaps capable of doing things that you would no normally held, hold back from doing, uh, because the civilian alter ego is, is governed by all sorts of rules and social contracts and things and have to behave in a certain civilized way. Whereas a superhero is liber liberated from that um, because they are in disguise and psychologically the, the feeling of wearing a mask um, gives them that freedom to feel like they can do anything. Right. And, and, and it also creates an interesting kind of tension, too, which is, you know, the minute you put on a mask, uh, from the writer's point of view, the creator's point of view, the potential for unmasking starts to get really interesting. Like who who's going to see under that mask? Who's going to take off that mask? Presumably any time that happens, it's a very exciting moment. Yes. And it is the biggest threat to a superhero is, is the threat of unmasking. Um, because that's the thing that, that would, would tear them down. They would cease to be a superhero if they no longer have that dual identity. So um, unmasking, I think, is, is a bigger bigger weakness than, say, kryptonite for a lot of superheroes. Right. And so, I mean, once again, you know, we talked earlier about uh, Spider-Man being in a very postmodern frame of mind, the, the, the most interesting person, uh, most interesting superhero in terms of his attitude towards his costume. Um, and... Maybe it might be hard to think of another superhero who's had as much fun, so to speak, with his mask. So the thing that everybody thinks of immediately, obviously, is Spider-Man hanging upside down and kissing Kirsten Dunst. Uh, and, and there's that she kind of rolls the mask halfway down his face. And there is that psychological moment where I'm going to share half of myself with you. You can experience half of who I am and I'm going to withhold. I'm going to hold back the other half of myself. But Barbara, you also wrote about the maybe a less iconic moment. This is the 2012 Amazing Spider-Man movie with Andrew Garfield. Uh, we'll hear a little clip from this. You're going to hear Andrew Garfield rescuing a boy trapped in a burning car and using his own mask to reassure the boy. Let's get you out of here. Okay. Stay very still. Okay, one, two, three. Jack, climb now. I can't. Put it on. The mask. It's going to make you strong. That's it, buddy. That's it. Okay, now climb. Come on, Jack. You're doing great, buddy. You're doing great. So what goes on in that scene is that Spider-Man uh, takes off his mask, essentially, to reassure the boy that he, he's a fellow human being. And then he has the boy put the ma mask on himself. The boy himself dons the mask. So, Barbara, what's going on there? Well, firstly, on a simple level, it's a physical barrier. The boy is protected a bit more from his surroundings if he's got one of the most sensitive parts of his body covered. But, but more significantly, um, he is empowered by the mask. And all superheroes, all wearers of masks, feel able to do things they wouldn't normally do um, if their face is covered. And, and that's a very good example of that. Right. So, so yeah, it does. Uh, the, the suggestion is that, yes. And, and, and I guess, I mean, at a very practical level, if you're wearing a mask and you're doing stuff, 
Um, I mean, one of the things that superheroes have to do, they can't really necessarily follow the rules of engagement. They can't worry too much about breaking stuff. I mean, obviously, the Avengers Civil War movie was all about all this damage that they'd actually done over the course of trying to accomplish something good. But I guess there's a sense that the mask protects you from that, from liability claims, essentially. Well, yes, I mean, it, it's um, it, it's something that does make you feel like you can do anything um, because we are all bound by these laws um, when we're wearing our, our normal civilian clothes. People in uniforms, not only masks, um, are often wearing uniform to show that they can behave in ways that ordinary people can't. So, for example, um, the military or the police have special powers in that they're able, they're allowed to do things that ordinary civilians are not allowed to do, and they have permission to do things, and that permission is expressed through their costumes. And superhero costume works in the same way. It becomes a bit more acceptable for them to behave perhaps in a more violent way than other people when they're wearing a costume. And the mask, of course, is part of that. Um, yeah, I think also, just to return to a, a point that we keep coming back to, I mean, a lot of superheroes, they're just sort of living lives that, I mean, Batman's the best example. I mean, he's living a life that most people wouldn't recognize. On the one hand, he's this very acceptable society page's bold-faced name. And on the other hand, he's a guy, he's got a cave, he's got a boy he's not related to that he's living with, he's got all this creepy stuff he owns. I mean, ultimately, he's a placeholder, I think, a little bit for the fact that all of us have some part of our lives that we're not 100% comfortable sharing. Um, and certainly in the 50s and 60s, there were so many things between the McCarthy era here in America and, as I said before, uh, the, the incredible shame and, um, and danger attached to being gay um, I think maybe Batman and some of the other people who wear masks are sort of saying, well, sometimes you just have you you can't fully share who you are with people. Yeah, and it, it stands for a particular value or, or set of values. And it may be that those are only a small portion of the values that each character has. But those are the values that are embodied in the costume. Um, if we come back to the, the uh, clip that you played right at the beginning, you suggested that only one small set of values and that they have to be unchangeable values are embodied in a costume. They can't change, you can't add more values to it or take any away. So it's quite narrow. That costume really just embodies one very small set of values. Mm. All right. Um, so, yeah. Well, so we're going to um, move on to our final segment here. We're also going to say uh, goodbye and thank you very much to Barbara Brownie, lecturer in visual communication at the University of Hertfordshire, which I'm sure I've been mispronouncing all the way through, uh, and co-author of The Superhero Costume, Identity and Disguise in Fact and Fiction. We are going to finish with somebody who creates these images, one of the people who has been an illustrator and artist uh, of superheroes. Stand up for what is right. Be your own superhero. How come the Incredible Hulk can walk around barely wearing pants, but She-Hulk has to wear a sports bra? Double standard! Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea in a pistachio mint-colored unitard and marigold cape. And by me, Kion Wolf, I'm just wearing one of Wonder Woman's old bathing suits. Amanda Fish is wearing Bob Mackie for Mutants. How's that different from regular Bob Mackie? The part of Bill Curry was played by Stan Lee. On tomorrow's show, revisit our conversation about walls. 
And now, back to Colin. Yes, and tomorrow night, Wednesday night, if you if you feel like it, join us uh, at uh, the Copper Beach Institute, which is on the grounds of the Holy Family Monastery in uh, West Hartford, where we're going to be doing a show about music and spirituality. Some wonderful musicians will be coming together uh, to talk about the role that spirituality plays in their creativity. All right, now we are finishing our conversation uh, about uh, superhero costumes and uniforms with somebody who knows them well and somebody who is comic book royalty. In addition to that, John Romita Jr., a uh, veteran comic book illustrator and writer for Marvel and now DC Comics. I say royalty because he's part of a dynasty. Uh, both of his parents were involved also uh, in the industry. Welcome to our conversation, John. Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm doing just fine. So before we plunge in here, I mean, one of the reasons we're doing the show today is the centenary of Jack Kirby. Um, uh, Jack Kirby certainly changed some of the visual signatures uh, of comic books. If you were to describe to someone who didn't know much about this how Jack Kirby changed, say, the way comic book superheroes looked in terms of their costumes and their overall appearance, how would you try to describe it? In a brief amount of time, that would be impossible. But because of his unique style uh, and his dynamic anatomy uh, look, I say dynamic dynamic anatomy because of Bern Hogarth, who's a famous illustrator, who created the, who did the book called Dynamic Anatomy about illustrating comic book characters in a dynamic way. Jack Kirby had that uh, in everything he did. Uh, The costumes and, and and the dynamism of his work, of course, set the stage for countless artists, me included, my father included. Uh, it's hard to describe briefly what he was, uh, but his style was so unique, and it was less about his art style and more about the way he uh, uh, showed uh, the, the stories. Uh, his storytelling and his power were second to none. And the interesting thing is if you ask everybody, each individual artist subsequent to him and that grew up reading his work, uh, their opinion of it, they probably all describe it in their context. In other words, mm-hmm. how it affected them, and each of them were affected by him. Uh, but he added power uh, and dynamism to the industry that nobody else could uh, or has done, I don't believe. It's stunning, the, 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 the difference he made in the industry, because he added so much power to things, uh, size, scope, weight. Um, again, in, in the terms of artists is what I'm looking at. And it affected writers, because Stan Lee probably couldn't have become what he was with the characters that he created along with Jack, had it not been for Jack. Now, people can argue back and forth who's more important, Stan mm-hmm. Lee or Jack Kirby. But as somebody who worked, who, excuse me, who knows uh, uh, another one of Stan Lee's partners, my father, again, another artist that, is, uh, that affects Stan Lee in a, in a positive fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jack Kirby... What he did to several titles is uh, beyond people's description because it's, it, it affected hundreds of artists and writers since. Well, I don't want to run out of time without talking about John Romita Jr. So when, <laughs> That's all right. when you when you draw the incredible when you drew the Incredible Hulk or Daredevil or the X Men or Spider Man or Thor when you draw Superman when you draw Batman you you're the person deciding on that day anyway what this character looks like based on everything that's gone before, but also what's inside you. I mean, who is the most exciting for you to draw of the, the, the famous iconic superheroes? Uh, to me, it's Spider-Man uh, because of the history with my father. The, the, the character was much like a sibling because it, <laughs> we, we grew up near Forest Hills 
and we would drive past, and my father would say, that's where Spider-Man grew up, and so on. Uh, so it felt like there was somebody in my house. Uh, that, to me, was exciting. And to, the thought to have the character swinging from buildings that were iconic, mm-hmm. and, and that we could see uh, those buildings, my brother and I were just fascinated, and I think that stuck with me even to this point. When you moved to D.C., you described yourself as being a little intimidated about drawing Superman. Why right. was that? Uh, that? Because it's a character that's been around for the longest amount of time, drawn by the greatest artists. Uh, it, it should be considered the greatest character of all time because of its uh, length of time. Just beyond belief, uh, how many people have worked on it before me that are better than me, and I'll never get better than That kind of feeling is intimidation. Um, Superman, as, although he's iconic and he's permanent, his look has also changed a little bit. How do they decide when they're going to change the look uh, of a really timeless character like that one? Uh, I'll be a little bit cynical and say that corporate decisions have an effect on it, but let's, let's eliminate that and say as, as creators, you generally go with storylines, and if something uh, is proposed that allows for a slight change, uh, let's say uh, uh, to the fact that Sp- Superman gets lost somewhere and his costume is unimportant, that kind of thing. Uh, if a storyline dictates that you can play with the costume, so be it. And uh, I say corporate with cynicism, but the truth of the matter is this is an international character, and the look is a standard. So you can't veer too far from it. However, in a, in a small arc, a short arc, six issues, maybe a year tops, you can play with Uh, the character, and you can tug on Superman's cape. (laughs) So, John, about a minute left. It must be fun to create something completely new. It's often going to be a villain. Just quickly, tell us about Ulysses. This was an enemy uh, of Superman, right? Yeah, this was simple, and it plays towards the creation of costumes. I was walking down, I think, 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue, and this very immense biker pulled up next to me on the curb, and he had a very long silver pony, platinum ponytail, and I, I thought that this is the character right here. Now, he was a gigantic biker, and I was ready to use him in a different frame. But when I was creating uh, Ulysses, I did not want to make it a mirror image of Superman, which, ironically, it's, it's a slight mirror image of Superman in the context of the story. But I didn't want a cape. Mm-hmm. And to me, something flowing for this kind of interplanetary character, I thought the hair would, would suit it. And mm-hmm. I imagined that biker with that... Uh, calf length, it seemed like calf length platinum blonde ponytail. And I said, there you go. I'm there's your, there's your Ulysses. Yeah. John Romita Jr., so great to talk to you. So great to talk to all these people. Somebody who grew up reading comic books. It's, I certainly remember John Romita Sr. So anyway, we'll take, a, uh, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll just stop doing this show and we'll start doing another one. I hope you like this one. Honey, do these tights make my butt look big? No, not at all, dear. Your butt looks petite. And perky. Well, hell, Harold. I'm supposed to be big butt woman, not petite and perky girl. Thanks a lot. 